This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today is one of my favorite episodes. I, I haven't even listened to it. I'm well, excited. Well, you know what? We were there and talk about easy. I mean, yeah. we, we set up a debate. All we did was show up with one question. And I think an hour and a half later, that's, we that's left. That's not true. That's not true. We actually stayed up half the night thinking of like really, really great questions. I think we went in with about 10. Yeah. I think we asked two. That's right. Uh, well, and we got right at the end. We got a couple, a couple out, but it was it was incredible. We had Andre Pavlov, uh, professor of finance from SFU, right, uh, the BD school over there, sitting across the table from Tom Davidoff, uh, associate professor at the Sauter School of Business, and basically they're on both two, past guests, both past guests, both fan favorites. They're on opposing sides of a bunch of different policies, right? The, the school tax, right? Uh, the speculation tax. Whether or not pop property tax is expensive or it, inexpensive in Vancouver. Basically, the role of government and the government policy right now Absolutely. in Vancouver, totally on opposite sides. We asked one question, they just went back and forth, and it was a fascinating discussion. Got slightly heated at, at little moments, but it was mostly friendly. Mo- over Danishes and coffee uh, right. in, in Tom's living room. So it was, or Tom's kitchen, I should Tom's say. Kitchen, yeah. yeah, Tom's kitchen. But yeah, anyway, stick around for it because it is a fascinating discussion, and and I'm glad it stayed civil. Uh, and they actually made a point of saying that this needs to be civil because the discourse around real estate in Vancouver has gotten so heated. 
Well, that's it, right? And I mean, these are two guys. Tom's from the United States. Uh, I believe Andrei Pav- Pavlov is, 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 I don't know when he immigrated to Canada, but um, he's not from Canada. Yeah, neither originally. of them, I think, were born in Canada. And, and like both of them have been told to leave the country, uh, it's you know, to stop heated. meddling. Uh, like Andre was saying he couldn't believe uh, some of the slander that was being thrown at him for for presenting a chart on property taxes. I mean, this is where we're at in Vancouver. It's, <laughs> I, when we started this podcast, we said, I don't think we'll ever have a, a lack of things to talk about. And this just speaks to that. I mean, now sure. a school tax has become uh, uh, something that we could talk about for weeks. And these guys spend over an hour but these, basically talking about. But yeah, it's super interesting stuff. It's super interesting. And the other thing is that these guys are both very active on Twitter where you have, you know, 280 character limitations or whatever. And, and you know, they, they can explain you know certain beliefs you know short short quips of how they feel about a certain policy or the other this is kind of a just an unedited long conversation where they get to really flesh out their ideas on each policy and and disagree with each other over and over again right so to sit there and watch these two super bright guys uh, go at it is is great and and the nice thing too we should say we're gonna have on our website go over to vancouverrealestatepodcast.com to this episode which will be the main episode we're gonna have a vote on who you think won yeah right but it is we should say again it it's better hatchets, to, hatchets were buried hatchets were buried there's this is more of a round table than a debate i would right. say in a lot of ways and uh, i think that just made it more interesting yeah and we should say that we're, we're making this a versus just for the benefit of our show right yeah it's an advertising thing for us <laughs> <laughs> all right well hey without further ado here is our round table discussion slash debate the great debate the great debate with tom davidoff and andre pavlov enjoy Okay, so we're here with our first Vancouver Real Estate Podcast debate, which is actually more of a, a roundtable uh, discussion with pastries involved. We're here with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC, and Andre Pavlov, a Professor at the BD School, Professor of Finance, I should say, at the BD School of Business at Simon Fraser University. Thanks, guys, for taking the time. Real pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so maybe we'll start with just a general question here, and uh, we'll start with Tom. Are we in a better place in June 2018 than June 2017 or June 2016 when it comes to housing in Vancouver? Uh, In terms of affordability, no. Uh, The affordable segment of the market, uh, in in a surprise certainly to me, and I think a lot of other people, has gone bananas in price that were probably up 30%. Uh, in terms of condo. The top of the market has slowed, certainly in transactions. You can tell me better, but I think for the same quality house, certainly relative to 2017, maybe 2016 summer, I think the same quality high-end house is probably a bit less expensive. Yes, absolutely. But uh, in terms of people looking to buy a place, no. In terms of rents, I think they're up uh, considerably from where they were two years ago. And and what about on the on the policy side of things? Do you think we're in a better position now than we were, say, a year ago? Well, there's low-hanging fruit uh, in two dimensions of policy. One of them we're not going to talk much about, and that's zoning. And, you know, uh, I think the local municipalities are getting there. They're adding some multifamily housing slowly but surely. There's a lot under construction. In the short run, you couldn't have done any more uh, than the governments are doing because the bottlenecks are going from approvals now apparently to uh, the trades. 
in terms of tax, I think uh, the province has done some good things lately, uh, in particular uh, the BC Housing Affordability Fund became the speculation tax. Uh, we've got the empty homes tax in Vancouver, uh, more controversially, and we'll talk about it, uh, the additional school tax on high-end homes. So number one, we are shifting a bit of the uh, revenue burden in the government from people working for a living to people who own real estate, which I think is a good thing. And two, I think we have an element of trust in terms of development that we may not have had before the taxes came in. Because a lot of people will say, you know, all these new condo projects, they're just going to sit empty and be bought by some guy sitting overseas. And there's two things. One, that's, I think, quite unreal. First of all, I don't think that was ever the case. That was most of the units. But secondly, at this point, that's very unlikely. You got to pay, if you're foreign, a 20% tax up front. And then every year, you're going to have, if it's an expensive unit, you got the additional school tax. Even if it's just a condo, you've got uh, 1% city vacancy tax if it's in Vancouver and 2% foreign speculation tax. You'd be at 3% of value every year plus 20% up front. Not a lot of people are going to pay that for a condo. And even if they do, they're doing everybody a big favor in terms of uh, providing a lot of revenue to the province. So I think we've established some trust, I hope. Uh, that all these new condo projects are actually going to go for local use. And and is that trust so, sort of more, just following up here, more optics? Or is that kind of a, a real, in terms of like good policy? Well, I think the, uh, the trust is important. But yeah, I think it's good policy as well. I think uh, there's no reason to offer very low property taxes in a place like Vancouver to people who don't live and work here. I don't see any economic reason to do that. Of course, we'll talk about the school tax. And then the question is, if you do live and work here, should you pay, be paying a bit uh, higher property tax? That's controversial. If you look at the polling, I don't think it's very controversial that somebody who buys a property isn't a landlord and doesn't work here uh, ought to pay more than a quarter percent property tax. Okay, maybe we'll we'll shift gears to you, Andre. Uh, are we in a better place in June 2018 than June 2017 or June 2016? So in June 2016, we had um, every possible government intervention designed to stimulate the market. So we had very low interest rates, very easy underwriting requirements. Um, really, um, the real estate was treated in a very favorable way in terms of taxes. And then real supply constraints uh, at every, um, for every reason imaginable. So you, you're simulating demand to the max and you're constraining supply, you're going to get price increases. Now, things have changed a lot since then, right? So first of all, interest rates are going up and have gone up a little bit um, already. Um, you, it's much harder to get a loan now because underwriting requirements have changed. And um, above all, the government has started introducing taxes, first the foreign buyer tax and now a whole set of other taxes. So it uh, seems like now we sort of have shifted gears in complete reverse and the government is um, at all levels has taken steps uh, to... to reduce demand. Now, uh, we haven't done anywhere enough on the supply side. I mean, sure, there's some multifamily construction. I agree with Tom on that. But but um, we really, really need to, uh, you know, double the size of Vancouver over the next 10, 15, 20 years, right? And and we're nowhere on track to uh, to achieve that. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about the 
school tax and um, and uh, uh, affordability fund and all that. But uh, in my view, the original, the first taxes, the foreign buyer tax, uh, you know, that was, um, you know, something had to be done at that time. Um, there was, uh, in my view, very just no way to to continue without doing much. Um, uh, so so there was some justification for that. Um, I feel now we've gone too far, and not only that, but I really don't see how the new uh, taxes, especially the school tax, is actually uh, helping affordability. So maybe in in that vein, so are, are property taxes too high in Vancouver, Andre? Yeah, we should talk about that because there's clearly <laughs> a discussion going on out there. Um, so uh, obviously Tom says, yes, they are too low, and he looks at the meal rate. What I say is, no, they are the highest uh, because I look at the benchmark price for single-family home, and I multiply that by the meal rate. So I think we're pretty clear on the methodology here. Uh, the disagreement is, I believe, should we be using the meal rate or should we be using the taxes people actually pay in dollar terms. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, obviously I have all kinds of arguments why we should use dollar terms, uh, and I'm happy to get into that, but my number one argument really is, um, is my paycheck, right? So my paycheck is in dollars. The cookies we have on the table were paid for in dollars, uh, and, uh, and my employer isn't going to adjust my salary with uh, the assessed value. So, um, you know, it's uh, what matters to me is the dollar amount of property tax that I uh, would have to pay. And uh, by the way, the view of the city is the same, right? So the view of the city doesn't care about necessarily the rate. They have a particular budget in mind that they need to fund the services that they have promised. And they then they take that budget and divide it by the total assessed value in the city. And uh, that's how the tax rate is, uh, is computed. So the rate is an outcome, not an input to, to property taxes. And of course, when you have high valuations, you're going to have low tax rates and vice versa, because running a fire department costs about the same everywhere. And, and, you know, before, Tom, we'd like you to respond, we should say for those listening and not on Twitter, where I think most of the debate has happened, that, uh, Andre, you've put out a chart that was um, led to a lot of debate. And, Tom, you responded with your own chart. And there's a debate going on whether, whether property taxes are actually fundamentally high in Vancouver, right? But, Tom, we'd love to hear your response to Andre. Yeah, I think we can talk about the theory of it uh, and should we have higher rates or lower rates. And then we can talk about the fact, do people pay a lot of property tax properly measured? So maybe I'll just do a bit on the theory and then we can move uh, elsewhere. You know, if you just had to raise a fixed amount of money in the city of Vancouver through property taxes and that was the end of the day, then of course the mill rate should just move inversely with uh, property values and you're always raising the same amount of money. Now the city can spend more or less money. They can have better parks or worse parks. So there's some adjustability there. But where there's a lot of adjustability is that every province pays part of the school budget through property taxes that go up to the province and then get reverted back to municipalities. So we don't fund nearly all of the school budgets like they do in the states with property taxes here. There's more income and sales tax burden to fund the schools. But it's not a fixed amount. You can kick up more to the province with property tax to fund schools and other provincial goods. 
uh, or you can have higher income and sales taxes. And then the question is, where should we? So, so there's adjustment. And then the question is, should we be adjusted up or down in Vancouver relative to other municipalities in terms of rate, in terms of dollars paid, et cetera? And my argument is always in a place like Vancouver, where most of the property value, especially at the high end, is on land that isn't going anywhere. You're not really doing a lot of damage to the economy with a property tax. Now, any tax does damage. Like Andre says, you get a paycheck and then you have to pay for stuff. And when your any kind of tax goes up, you get less stuff. That's just how it is. So nothing you can do about that. But holding the spend constant for the province, then the question is what kind of taxes mess up people's decisions, make them work less. And a tax on land that is going nowhere uh, doesn't mess up people's decisions. That's a fairly fundamental principle of taxation. So as long as the amount raised uh, is really thought of as adjustable, uh, then I don't see an argument against having higher property tax burden here than elsewhere. Now let's talk about the factual burden. In terms of the burden, uh, there's a, a number of ways you could look at it. I think the right way is what fraction of rent is covered by a property tax, because then if you think about it, uh, the present value of the property tax uh, would be a percentage times the present value of rents. And that, that's a sensible measure. The problem is rent as a fraction of value is different in metro areas. So looking at uh, the property tax rate as a fraction of value uh, actually understates a little bit the true tax burden in Vancouver. But even if you look at property tax as a function of rent, as, as a fraction of rent, we're low uh, in Vancouver relative to the median in Canada. I think we're maybe at 75% of the median of the metro areas you can measure. I think we're also lower than the median, even in terms of dollar value. Our mill rates are so low that if you look at a typical person, like the person who owns uh, lives in a typical property in Vancouver, that property is kicking up uh, less property tax than a typical property in Winnipeg uh, or certainly Toronto. A little bit more than Calgary and uh, Edmonton, if you include, a, say, 7% a year on the property transfer tax, which I think is reasonable because we have relatively high property transfer tax. So going on a little while here, uh, but, but this technical point, I think, is an important one. I don't see any reason to compare single family to single family. There's an argument that a $5 million house in Vancouver and a $5 million house in Edmonton have the same value. It's five million bucks. If, it, if you didn't have the same value, you'd see money flooding out of Vancouver and into Edmonton. People pay more here because you don't only get the structure and the land, you also get to live in Vancouver, which is terrific, and people are willing to pay a lot for it. So I'm not sure you should do any adjustment for value. But if you did, what you could look at is compare the median property in Vancouver, the overall benchmark to the median property in other markets. And again, we'll come up low in terms even of dollars paid when you do it that way. You could look at the 90th percentile where you get into the school tax. And again, the 90th percentile property in Vancouver is going to pay less than the median across Canadian cities of 90th percentile properties. But single family versus single family just isn't right because it's a real luxury to have a single family here in Vancouver, especially for people getting into the market. And that's not so in a lot of other markets. You have a response, Andre? Or? Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for uh, bringing that up because um, I'm so glad to finally have a civilized discussion on that rather than uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just, just name calling. I uh, could throw one of these pastries if, you, if we, <laughs> we want to get back into the Vancouver way. Yes, he told me so kind. He throws pastries, not, uh, not uh, you know, broken bottles. Anyway, um, all good points, uh, Tom. Thank you. But um, I'm, I'm really glad. So I'm trying to figure out where we agree here. And, and I think where we agree 
is that uh, the at least the municipal portion of the property taxes should be low where property values are high and vice versa. I, I think you said that um, because the municipal budget is pretty fixed across Canada, right? So, uh, so that's um, I think that's a good place to to start, right? Uh, um, and then, uh, so now we are talking about uh, now we are then talking about um, how much the province takes, all right? So I recognize the theoretical argument that we uh, should have high property taxes and low income taxes. Uh, and in fact, I have brought up uh, myself uh, that in the past, um, again, as a theoretical argument. The problem is, that's not the discussion we're having today. We're seeing absolutely no reduction in income tax or any other tax. In fact, income taxes have gone up, payroll taxes have gone up, as far as I can tell, every other tax has gone up. So that uh, theoretical argument, yeah, uh, sure, we, we should choose who to tax and how to tax to minimize the the problems taxes pay, uh, taxes cause. Yeah, that's a very good argument to have, and I love to have it. But it's not relevant because all taxes have gone up. Um, so that aside, even if we, uh, Tom and I, love to discuss things in theoretical worlds as well. Uh, so let's say we were discussing which, um, uh, how to tax. And yes, if we are starting from scratch, um, there is an argument to uh, have high property taxes and low income taxes. But that's if you design the system from the start. The problem is you can't switch, right? Because someone who's lived here for 30 years has been paying very high income taxes all that time. And now if we switch, we're going to have to uh, tax that same person again based on their property. So that particular person gets taxed at very high rates twice um, at really the expense of um, others who avoid either one or the other. Um, so that's the switch is very problematic. So there are ways to work around that, right? We can say, well, that's fine. We're going to have high property taxes and low income taxes from now on. Uh, that's okay, but uh, we're going to let everyone uh, who has filed taxes for the past 10 years in BC to restate that and get a nice big paycheck, right? So uh, not a paycheck, a refund for the high uh, income taxes they've paid. And then, um, you know, that might be, uh, you know, theoretically acceptable. Uh, but again, to come back to reality here... Uh, all taxes have gone up. There's no, there's no idea that oh, let's figure out how to improve our tax system. No, the the discussion is how to increase the tax system. Now, um, that aside, uh, let's go to uh, to the little issue that Tom and I have, which is how to figure out what benchmark to use uh, in in terms of comparing property taxes across uh, the country, and. Um, since to me, ideally, we take one house, which is typical, and we move it around the country, the same house, and uh, that house should pay the same tax because it receives the same services. Uh, and uh, the closest to that, obviously, that's hard to do. We would need transaction data for for uh, every city, and you know that's going to require a lot of work to come up with that answer. But the next best thing is to look at the particular property type. And since the school, the school tax we're discussing applies to single-family homes, mostly, because the vast majority of transactions over $3 million are in single-family homes, 
um, seems to me that's a very reasonable benchmark to use. So on single-family homes, single-family homes in Vancouver pay absolutely the highest tax in Canada. Now, uh, if you don't like that for some reason, um, then we can look at uh, apartments, right? And uh, in apartment, it is correct that apartment owners in Vancouver don't pay the highest tax in Canada. They pay, you know, about average, um, but um, not the lowest by any measure. And the problem with apartments is that it's very difficult to compare apartment in one city to another. They are different. They Some are newer, some are older, some are smaller, some are bigger. Higher floor, lower floor view, you know, it's harder to compare apartments. Single-family homes are pretty typical and pretty similar across the country. Um, so uh, seems to me the single-family home benchmark is the one to use. Uh, but again, even if we go to the apartment benchmark, our taxes are not the lowest. Now, what I disagree with is using the benchmark for the city because that is composed of, uh, has, that has different composition of single-family homes versus apartments. So in a city like Vancouver, the benchmark is heavily weighted towards apartments, more so than any other city. And uh, so then what you're really doing is you're comparing the property tax on an apartment in Vancouver to property tax on a single-family home somewhere else. And those two property tax, uh, property properties are not at all the same. And yeah, of course, we know single-family homes would pay more. Uh, you know, that's uh, you know that's uh, that's pretty clear. But um, that's comparing different property types, and that uh, that confuses the issue. I think <laughs> the response, Tom. Yeah. So uh, obviously, there was a lot in that. But let, let's go to uh, what adjustment to make in terms of comparing who's paying what. So one natural baseline would be, suppose we just had a federal system and everybody paid the same income tax rate, the same sales tax rate, and the same property tax rate. Then there'd be no adjustment at all for the fact that Vancouver is a more uh, expensive city, and I don't think that would be a particularly crazy thing to do. Then let's talk about uh, what we might call, pardon a little bit of lingo here, a hedonic adjustment, adjusting for the quality of the home in terms of price. Within Greater Vancouver, uh, a condo in Cole Harbor may cost more uh, than a single-family home in Killarney, uh, and certainly more than one in Coquitlam, which actually has a similar property tax mill rate to Vancouver. I don't think within Greater Vancouver anybody says, oh, wait a second, no, the guy in Cole Harbor should actually pay lower tax than the guy in Coquitlam. Uh, because he's in a condo and the other guy's in a house and, you know, yeah, he's got a better location, right? The location counts in the property value. So when you compare across Canadian cities, again, uh, a half million dollar home in Winnipeg is physically lovely. Uh, but as you guys are well aware, it involves not living anywhere near the beach and uh, suffering through mosquitoes in the summer and freezing cold in the winter. And that's why it's a half million dollars. And the same physical structure might be $3 million here in Vancouver. But Part of what you're paying for is the quality of life, just like uh, the same home in downtown Vancouver is more expensive than the same home in Coquitlam, and we don't make uh, an adjustment in terms of property tax rate there. I just uh, really don't agree with Andre that uh, you ought to – I respectfully disagree, very respectfully. Great guy and all. Totally great. And, th <laughs> and, th and thanks for the pastries. But um, I, I disagree that you ought to make that adjustment when comparing the benchmark. Uh, you so know, one, one analogy would be when you go to the store, if I buy almonds, I pay more sales tax than if I buy peanuts. 
you know, you don't say, whoa, 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 you're only getting, you know, you're getting 50 nuts either way. You should pay the same tax. The almonds are better nuts, most people think. And uh, you pay more for them and you pay the same uh, sales tax rate. So I don't mean to interrupt, but let's let's nail I'm that done. down rather than rather than um, uh, have multiple issues going. So I love your um, uh, uh, you know your nuts analogy. I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, the same structure in Winnipeg and in Vancouver consumes the same water and the same fire services and the same police services. So it should pay the same. It doesn't matter that it's nicer in one city or another. Um, by the way, I'm sure people in Winnipeg might disagree on a, ver- on a variety of other uh, uh, dimensions. But well, it might be a very friendly city and nobody right. screams at each other about real estate. Well, so that, I bet there's a lot going for it. That'd be an improvement in my, uh, in my <laughs> book. Anyway, that aside, uh, it, it, it does not cost more to run a fire department here than, than in Winnipeg. And therefore, the services that you consume... Uh, should cost the same. So going back to the uh, almonds versus um, uh, peanuts analogy, peanuts should cost the same. So f- buying a fire department protection should cost the same across Canada. Now, what you're talking about is not municipal taxes. You really want to shift tax burden from income to to property taxes to fund other causes, not not services. And uh, that's where the theoretical argument about, uh, you know, how much we should tax property versus income comes in. And again, I'm very sympathetic to that argument in a theoretical world. But that's not the world we're in right now because all taxes have gone up. So, um, you know, I really don't see why someone, um, you know, in, in Vancouver should pay more per dollar uh, I mean, more in dollar terms than um, someone anyone else, at least when it comes to the municipal services that they're receiving. Okay, so let's 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 maybe just do some rapid fire. Yeah. See yes. see if we can come to some common ground. Okay, uh, number one, you know, if you think about a fixed dollar amount that has to be raised, I agree, you have to do a price adjustment. I think we can. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so that, it's very important to come out with something right. we agree okay. on. So now let's see if uh, I'm going to try and get one out of you. Of course. Uh, so within Greater Vancouver, should the condo in the city of Vancouver be paying the same dollar property tax as the condo in Coquitlam? Should you be making the price adjustment within Greater Vancouver? Well, we are making that price adjustment because it, uh, um, rates, I believe, are set at the um, uh, city level, right? Yeah, but so, they're pretty similar rates. So a, a Coal Harbor condo pays a lot more in dollars than the same physically nice uh, condo in New West or Coquitlam. Is that inappropriate or okay? Oh, that's, uh, I don't know what the municipal budget of uh, Coquitlam is and how they're managing to do that, but good for them. Uh, for being able to service their, to provide the municipal services to that city, to their citizens at a lower cost, because clearly they're collecting less. What you're saying is that they're collecting less tax, right? What I'm asking is, is it grossly inappropriate that a guy in Vancouver with the same physical condo as somebody in Coquitlam with the same physical condo uh, pays a lot more tax? Yeah, but that won't be the case if the two cities, right, were equally efficient. So uh, the only reason um, uh, someone in uh, in Cole Harbor pays more in terms of property tax, at least the municipal portion of it, which is what we're talking about here, I think, uh, is that the city of Vancouver budget is higher. Now, that could be inefficiency. could be that the city of Vancouver is providing more of services. That's a separate question, right? But if the cities are providing exactly the same services and those services cost the same, 
then the property taxes in dollar terms should be the same. Uh, now, I recognize it's probably more expensive to provide fire services actually in Vancouver because wages are higher, whatever. I don't know. I mean, you have to pay the firemen a little more probably to be here. But those differences are relatively small. Okay, well, let's try this one. Let's go uh, Coal Harbor, Killarney, within the city of Vancouver. So same municipal base. Should the city be making a hedonic adjustment that the guy in Coal Harbor versus the guy in Killarney uh, should have a lower tax rate on his value because it's more expensive in Coal Harbor than Killarney. So there is a practical issue here. We can't have different tax rates within one city, right? Well, I think we well understand. you could have a head tax, right? I mean, if you have uh, two kids, maybe you should pay the same tax generally because you're imposing about the same fiscal burden. And, that's not the direction and, we go. No, and by the way, that's also just as theoretically justified as the property tax you suggest, <laughs> right? And no one is even thinking about that. Yeah. All right. So um, the fact that something's theoretically justified doesn't mean it, uh, you know, it's practical. Uh, so, yes, within the city... It's, uh, uh, it, it, it's, yes, it's an approximation, but seems to me within city, especially as long as the cities are relatively small, no one's going to, it, it's just not practical to go and do the exercise and measure how much services everyone receives. But interestingly, we're moving that way. We're moving that way because in the past, I understand water was taxed at a flat rate, right? Now we're moving towards metering and the uh, price per you know, glass of water is the same everywhere, right? So you don't pay more for that water because you live in a nice condo, right? You I think we same. are. I, I think another point of agreement is Andre and I definitely agree that if uh, the government's giving you a service, even an implicit service like driving over a bridge, you probably ought to be paying for it. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah, I know where Tom is going with that. So that's, we disagree here, but, uh, but it's kind of interesting because there's no societal debate on that, right? It's, uh, there's societal debate on the issues we just discussed. I don't think anyone likes uh, towing, uh, congestion pricing and, 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 and towing. And, uh, Not going to happen, but, I've uh, Right. But Tom and I fully agree that, yeah, I mean, if you're receiving a service, whether that service is getting a glass of water from your tap or uh, driving on a road or going on the SkyTrain, you should be paying for that service right there and then. No no, no need to tax for that. You, you just pay per That's right. service. That's right. So, you know, there is a point, and I think Andre again and I would agree, that it wouldn't be crazy to have a per-person property tax. Uh, but we decide to do some redistribution and that people with fancier homes uh, pay higher property taxes. And within cities, for whatever reason, uh, we include as part of the fanciness of the home where it is, because the location value obviously forms part of the property tax. And where we disagree is whether, uh, so we agree it's okay within cities to have part of the property tax base be location quality. We seem to disagree on when you compare communities, whether it's appropriate to factor in the fact that Vancouver has better uh, location. And that's why, that's exactly why, I'm sure we agree on this as well, that's exactly why uh, the same property is more expensive here. Let's that's right. So, so the issue with, uh, within a city is a practical one, right? It's very difficult to have different property rates for different properties. Like That's just not, gonna, not a workable solution. Uh, but in, in my ideal world, we pay for the services that receive, and then if we pay for subscription to the fire department, uh, that would be uh, the same dollar amount, uh, no matter where. Agree with that. Now, um, uh, then, then the question is whether another approach, which to me is a compromise approach, because I'd say just compare mill rates, but adjusted by cap rates, so you're really looking at the tax on rent in dollars, and then that's like a sales tax, right? So that would be another, I think, not crazy argument, is everybody... 
as a baseline would pay the same sales tax rate or income or dividend rate on the on the rental income. Uh, and then you, you'd be comparing rates again, but adjusted for cap rates, which I think is totally appropriate. Uh, another point I want to get to is the uh, what which Andres raised, which is a totally valid one: is hey, you know, the province isn't cutting income taxes. In fact, they're up. If you trust the provincial government, then a dollar of tax revenue is as good as a dollar of income tax cut, because if it weren't the government would spend less money and cut some tax. And then the question is, what tax? So if we assume, if we separate how much the province spends, and and I'm not going to defend how much the province spends. I'm not going to attack it. I'm not going to defend it. Should we be spending more money on uh, seniors' rental subsidy? Or should we say, hey, too bad, so sad, Grandma? You know, that's a a separate discussion. Holding the revenue constant, it is true that raising more property tax revenue reduces other tax revenue because if they were going to spend that money, they were going to have to raise it somehow. Now, a, a totally valid argument is I think the uh, right of center uh, liberal party had it right. And I think the left of center NDP has it wrong in terms of spending. That's a totally, to me, separate argument from holding spending constant. How should we raise the money? Now, if you want to be against property taxes in Vancouver, because you say that's a juicy target. I want to prevent the government because so much is in land value and because it's such a rich target property in Vancouver. I actually want to constrain the government's ability to tax that juicy target exactly because I think they're going to take my money and waste it. That's really a separate argument. Implicit in what I'm thinking is we basically think the government has it right. They're spending a fixed amount of money, and now the question is how to fund it. I totally respect the argument, however, uh, that somebody might think the the government's just too big, and we want to really put them in a cage in terms of their spending. That's that's not an invalid viewpoint. Yes, so it is. uh, That is clearly a valid viewpoint. Clearly, a lot of people uh, hold that viewpoint. I personally disagree. I think, uh, yeah, sure, there is an optimal level of government at some point. I think we're way past that optimal level in, in Vancouver and in, in British Columbia. But but that aside, even if we um, uh, say, okay, well, let's hold the government spending constant. Uh, first of all, we're not holding it constant. It has gone up a, a, a whole lot. Uh, but even if we say let's hold it constant, um the issue is that the school tax, at least as it's proposed, it's uh, it's supposed to generate, I understand, $80 million uh, in the first year, and then that somehow goes to $200 million. I don't understand exactly. I think it's a full year versus partial. I'm not okay, sure. Sure. Well, so let's call it uh, $200 million, uh, even though I haven't verified that number. Um, but that's peanuts compared to the $50 billion uh, BC budget, right? So this is not going to uh, raise all that much revenue. I really think, um, so at first I was surprised that the current government being uh, sort of in a minority situation and, 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 and you know, um, really not, not uh, in my view, not having um, uh, that much, um, um, you know, confidence uh, right now uh, would take that measure. And then, but now I'm of the view, not that I can speak for the government, but it really seems to me then this is a trial balloon. So we're trying to figure out how people would object to this. And then the plan is, of course, to increase uh, property taxes even more and lower the threshold, as uh, as Professor Kershaw has suggested, and as, as Tom uh, uh, likes, right? So, um, so we're not talking about really uh, $4 per thousand uh, school tax 
uh, you know, on, on homes over 3 million or 4 million or whatever the current proposal is, we're really talking about the fundamental shift to taxing property. Uh, and, um, and I think it's important to get the facts right on that. Yeah, let, let me uh, just agree again with Andre on something, which is I in everything I've proposed, it's it, there's there's a wash. It, it, you know, if you're going to introduce a big change to property tax, I would prefer that people see ah the money's coming back through lower income taxes. And when we structured the BC Housing Affordability Fund, uh, which I think has a lot of popular support, especially when the government didn't tax the Gulf Islands, which was a mistake that they they, they walked back. Uh, it was budget neutral, and seniors were off the hook. And you got credits for income tax paid, and you got credit for being a landlord. Uh, I think that 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 was a politically feasible way to go. The, whether there's politically feasible, and obviously some people are very angry about the additional school tax. Not most people. Most people support it, but obviously, you know, a fair number of the people who have to pay it are, are quite upset. And that it, it's legitimate for them to be upset, of course. And then there's a question of how do you transition in a tax, and a lot of that. There's two questions. There's politics, and I think we'll just stay away from what's politically wise or not because I I don't want to, you know, I mean, I have thoughts, but I don't want to get into it. But then there is an important fairness question. And I think, you know, the question is you, you, you played under one rules and now the rules are changing in the middle of your life. I totally see the objection that that's unfair. On the other hand, there's a couple of fairness issues that go the other direction. One is for whatever reason, we have this deferral option in British Columbia. So uh, people who are going to pay the school tax, if they're over 55 and if they don't have a lot of mortgage debt and if they don't have a lender, a guy named Paul Ratchford seems to have found uh, that some lenders, even if you got 10, 20 percent loan to value, might might object to your paying deferring. But if you're not paying this tax until you cash in on four million plus in dollars and this tax really doesn't have almost any bite until you're at that point, you know, if you stay in the house another 30 years, this tax is going to eat up. 12% 12% of the value over three and a half million dollars. I mean, it's not a, it's, it's not a killer. Your heirs are still going to be really rich. You know, most people just don't have three million dollars. So uh, generally speaking, you know, you can definitely come up with exceptions. But on average, this is a tax on people with a lot of resources. So that's, you know, what we generally think of as positive redistribution. There's an ability to pay. Yes, I totally agree with Andre that a transition from one type of tax system to another uh, involves some pain and you want to smooth that transition. But there is the other side that on average, this is a very uh, wealthy group uh, that's uh, suffering from this tax. So on the great points uh, on the on the uh, on the BC affordability fund, well, the, obviously I was uh, part of that proposal and very much appreciate that Tom brought me on board. Uh, and there were a few key features of that proposal that uh, that really got me excited about it. And, and one was it was supposed to be revenue neutral. The money was supposed to be collected and uh, spent very locally. Like give it, uh, there were thoughts about giving it actually as a check to the local residents where it was collected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I mean, it's, or, or reduce the property tax for that neighborhood, like... I was picturing block by block kind of uh, situation, so people immediately see the benefit um, of, uh, of um, you know that uh, redistribution, and then and then uh, it was um, so it was supposed to be ta- uh, revenue neutral. Any tax paid anywhere in Canada was supposed to be fully able to offset uh, the the increase in um, 
the vacancy tax. So you pay any tax anywhere in Canada, any dollar for dollar that offsets your tax liability, even if your home is vacant. And uh, instead, what we got is something very different. It's not revenue neutral. In fact, it's, you know, it comes on top of many other taxes, as we discussed. There's no benefit for the local block or neighborhood that is raising the tax. Um, and uh, the dollar um, offset from income taxes is capped at, um, I believe, 400 or, or it's basically up to about $400,000 in value. So, so the benefit, the offset is capped at $2,000 and it's done in the form of a non-refundable tax credit, which you don't get until you file next, uh, your taxes next year. So you have to pay now uh, that tax, which was supposed to be very careful and very gentle and, and only you know, tax people who are benefiting from our society but really haven't contributed anything to it. Um, and, and what we got, actually, is, um, is uh, very, very different. Um, so, yes, I have switched my position on that because of the great gap between what we proposed and what got uh, implemented. And then on the deferral issue, obviously, that's a very major point because people say, oh, anyone who can't uh, afford to pay the tax, they can defer, right? Well, um, so obviously, Tom already brought up the issue that many people are not allowed to defer uh, because their bank will not allow them. And their bank will not allow them for a good reason. The tax liability becomes a senior claim on the home before the mortgage, so it puts the bank at risk if someone defers taxes because if the if the home is sold, those taxes need to be paid first and then the bank gets paid. Uh, so I, I looked it up, I think, yesterday. It, tw- we have about 27.5%. What was the exact number here? Yeah, 27% of um, Vancouver single-family homeowners have a mortgage payment of more than 30%. So this is a third of the people here who own single-family homes pay more than a third of their income for housing costs, right? And of them, it's not clear how many are going to defer. So there is a certain percentage that are senior. We can figure out that percentage. 20%. So 20% right. so of 20% people of over 65, of, of 65 plus, I think 20% are at a third of uh, payments and, okay. and, and, so and, and have 20, a mortgage. All right, so if it's 20%, then we have uh, 10% of seniors are not going to be able to defer. So this is like thousands of people, right? I mean, I think, how many senior homeowners? I think we have... Hang on, I got five was my calculation. So it might have been, it was either 10, do, half half of the seniors who are more, have a more... Okay, so senior, have a mortgage, over 30% of your income on payments, that's 10%. If half the lenders ban it, which I don't think is right, but if it were... Uh, you'd be at five percent of seniors subject to the tax. Essentially, right. would, ha- would would be in this wicket. So and clearly, by the way, and, and, and I, I'm sorry, but I do I do, yeah. do want to remember this point. Telling seniors, don't worry about the tax. You can always sell your home. I don't think that's a nice thing to do. I don't. I, I don't think that's right. However, I also don't think it's right to say. I own a $7 million home, I'm not wealthy, I have low income, I think that isn't quite right either. Now, if a tax of, I don't know, five grand a year is really pushing you over the edge into impoverishment, right? So suppose, you know, just 5,000 years, a terrible hit I can't absorb, and yet 
I have the option of selling a $7 million house, putting $4 million, say $5 million in the bank, and buying a $2 million house. That's a very attractive option. And for someone who can't handle $4,000 a year, you have to think a significant fraction of them, and now we're looking at like 5% of the seniors subject to the tax, it's hard to believe that someone who can't take a few thousand a year in extra expenditures but could have a $5 million check written to them and live in a house. You know, a $2 million house is better than, I don't know, 80%, uh, 90% of the houses in greater Vancouver. So, uh, or homes, not not single family homes, but, you know, $2 million. Most people don't get to live in a $2 million house, and they certainly don't get to have $5 million. So you have to think of that 5% that's like liquidity constrained and sitting on a $7 million property, a lot of them have to be thinking about moving in the short run. I just have to believe that. And I don't think it's appropriate to say, one, I don't think you have to move, shut up, is nice or appropriate. But at the other extreme, I think $7 million house is not an affluent person. I think that's not correct either. See, we're going on a very slippery slope now where we do the balance sheet calculation for people and the income calculation for people and basically telling them, you're an idiot to do what you're doing. You should, uh, <laughs> you should, uh, you should uh, do something else, right? So economists, I know as economists, we do that a lot. Uh, we, I, I don't. <laughs> All right. What, what we do say is what, uh, uh, it, the fundamental measure of being better off is having more and better choices. So I think you're an idiot, you have to move, that's off the table as acceptable okay. discourse. However, you have a phenomenal choice. You know, a lot of us, I don't know about uh, sitting at the table or in this room, but many of us in greater Vancouver are never going to have a $2.5 million home and we're never going to have uh, $4.5 million in cash. If you have the option to have both, I recognize moving has costs, but to say that that person is a, a poor person, that's, 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 a, that's a tough one. All right, but that assumes in, we're, we're trying to figure out why people are doing or not doing something. They have that option to move as it stands right now without the tax, and they're not doing it. So there's got to be some other reasons for them to do it, and we have to respect that choice. This is a revealed preference rather than, in other words, this is what people do rather than what we think they should do. And you put uh, what people do against uh, what uh, Tom and I think people should do, I think, you know, I what people do uh, wins every time. By the way, I agree with Andre, just, uh, you know, and I've studied, uh, spent a fair amount of time studying retirement finance, and I thoroughly agree with Andre. There's a whole field of economics, behavioral economics, and I think there's a lot of value to it. You know, Larry Summers, the, uh, you know, great economist, uh, once said, uh, there are idiots, look around. So anybody <laughs> who knows anybody knows that some people make terrible choices. That said, just because somebody makes a choice that doesn't agree with our economic model doesn't make them stupid. And life annuities is a great example. My, my PhD advisor who won a Nobel Prize, Peter Diamond, basically thought old people shouldn't be allowed to, uh, you know, be in charge of their retirement portfolio, that the government ought to do a fair amount of public investment on their behalf because they make such bad choices as not buying life annuities that give you a little bit of money as long as you're alive, but then the principal's gone when you're dead. And... Um, it seems like an obvious welfare improvement, and we have a paper on that. But when you think about it more deeply, if you have a house with most of your money and you have a little bit of financial wealth and a lot of housing wealth, it's not clear that a life annuity is a good idea because you're taking what little cash you have today uh, and committing it to a time in the future when you likely will have cashed out on the house and don't need the money. 
So that's an example where very, very good economists say, hey, household, you're making an idiotic choice. And I think if you actually look more deeply at the institutional situation, maybe they're an idiot. I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, but they might also be doing something that actually in the richer environment is rational. So I totally agree with Andre that calling somebody an idiot and tell, and, and denigrating their choices and telling them they shouldn't be upset, all of that I, I don't agree with. But again, I think Andre would agree that one very good measure of how affluent you are is the choices you can make. And uh, having great choices available to you generally makes us believe that you're an affluent person. So, by the way, I did not mean to suggest that Tom has called anyone an idiot. That was that was more of a dick at our profession. Under my, uh, uh, under my breath, uh, uh, you can assure that I have. Be assured that I have. Yeah. No. Well, maybe other economists. That's that's fair game. Not 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 people out there. Not civilians. Yes, absolutely not civilians. So, um, but that's uh, having said that. The issue, one issue with the, with the school tax and its increase is that. It does exactly that. It forces people to take action that is on the table right now, and they could take that action, and they are not for whatever reason. Now, whether we understand that reason or not is a separate issue, but people are choosing not to sell. And, um, and uh, normally, you're not taxed until you take action, right? So you're never taxed until you go work and earn money, right? You're never taxed until you sell an asset, Right? And then you pay capital gains tax. Ah, uh, right? here we're going to just get into a disagreement because you can say, well, the property tax is a tax on the asset, and that's very unusual. But there's two things. One, there's no tax on the realization. You know, most assets, you have a $6 million capital gain. You're going to have to cough a lot up to Uncle Justin. The house is different. You know, these guys on the West Side, $7 million capital gain, unless they're stuck being a U.S. citizen uh, and have to pay a bit to the states, they're they're totally off the hook. So it's not like, oh, you know, you should wait until realization for the big tax because there is no big tax on realization with the house. That's one. Two, again, I think it's helpful to think about a property tax as a tax on implicit rental income. And I think we're in the 12... 14% range here for properties in Vancouver. So a 14% effective dividend tax rate is not a brutal tax rate. Now, there's no write-off of debt, which is a little bit different. Uh, But uh, when you think about the services you're getting uh, as a flow instead of the stock, you know, they're they're observationally equivalent. So a property tax can absolutely be thought of as as a dividend tax on rent. Yes, except in Vancouver, you know, the moment you deduct uh, interest expense... How many properties do you think will actually break even, let alone make any money? So, uh, so the the idea that yes, it is true, certain countries. Well, wait a second. We're talking tax, we're, we're talking about seniors here in particular, and for many of them, the uh, mortgage no. debt is very low. If you want to talk about you know well, operating but, households, that's a different matter. Because of course, if you've bought a three million dollar house recently, that it, it's a it's a totally different complaint that would be brought up. It's not I'm not an affluent person. Well, but there's about twenty seven percent of homeowners that are in that situation. So it's not insignificant number of people. And if we do that, then what if my implicit rent is below my cost of maintaining the house? Do I get a tax deduction? Right? Because that, if we're talking, you know, taxing implicit rent, that's fine. Then I get to deduct all costs. And if that turns out to be negative, I can now reduce my uh, labor income. So, you know, I mean... There's a lot of issues here that the moment we bring more proposals, so now I hear you, Tom, bringing two additional proposals. We should have capital gains on homes and we should tax implicit income. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. What I'm saying on capital gains on homes 
is uh, we don't tax capital gains on homes. So to say, oh, it's terrible to tax uh, the asset on an annual basis with property, it's totally unlike everything else. On everything else, you pay a tax at the end on the realization. Well, there is no tax on the realization with the house, except for, of course, the property transfer tax, which belongs in the calculation of tax burden. Let's be clear about that. And you might say the buyer pays the property transfer tax. That's wrong. Uh, In a market where it's very hard to build, most of the economic incidence is on the seller. Now, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you're correct. We should include the property transfer tax that will make taxes in Vancouver even higher than uh, than we have them right now. Lower uh, as a fraction of, even in dollars, you're still lower than the median for a properly adjusted property, unadjusted in terms of rate, you're still a bargain basement. All right, but that aside, uh, the idea that you pay the school tax even when property prices are down and you're actually losing money seems very unfair and very different from income tax or capital gain tax. Well, that's important because, uh, of course, you know, first of all, I think there's a lot of misinformation about the school tax. So let's just run through the formula. If your house is worth uh, $3,100,000, you don't pay 0.2% times $3.1 million. You pay 0.2% times 100000 the excess over $3 million. So that's, I don't know, 200 bucks, 20 bucks. It's a small number. Uh, and then, uh, so if you have a $4 million house, your bill is 2000 in extra property tax. So it's just important to get that, uh, factually correct. The other fact that's important to know is homes that are subject to the school tax because they're worth more than $3 million. Statistically, they're very concentrated between three and $4 million. So a lot of people who owe the school tax, you're looking at maybe a thousand bucks today. Now, a factual point about the budget that I think they've missed is the issue of next year, the school tax, you know, you you are knocking something off the dividend value, and that should reduce the asset value. So there's no way homes aren't worth less after the school tax is enacted uh, than they were before, holding everything else constant. I mean, who knows what will happen to the market. But Andre says, well, you know, you still pay the tax even if prices fall, but you pay a lot less tax. And in fact, if you had a 10% correction in the single family market in the next year, there's a significant fraction, you know, I don't know the number, but I'd be not at all surprised if it's 20% of the people who owe this year just would owe nothing in the following year. So this tax, uh, the, the mill rate doesn't change with the, with the property market, but how much of your value is subject to the tax changes a lot uh, with the market. So that's pretty interesting. So as I already mentioned, it doesn't look like that tax is the end of it, right? I think this is just a proposal to see how it's received by the public. And as Professor Kershaw suggests, we should have 1% property tax on everything over a million dollars, right? And, and Tom supports that. I support the uh, idea. Going to, going to 1% extra, which would be two and a half times the top school tax rate, that yeah. would catapult uh, Vancouver uh, n- near the top. Into so, recession, yes, yes. Well, not just, well, into recession, yes, but it would also put our, pro- our property tax burden, you know, at a very high level. I think that would yeah. be something you would transition to, if at all. And then, and then the other idea that the property taxes, the, school, the new school tax is not so bad because property values are going to fall, and therefore, you're going to pay less and it will be applicable to fewer homes than it is today. Yeah, I can see how that scenario might evolve. But this is like telling people, oh, you know, what? an increase in the income tax rate is not a big deal because now incomes are going to go down and you're going to be paying less tax at the end anyway. Uh, now, the fact that you're going to be a lot poorer because your property value is lower and you're paying higher tax, well, you know that's uh, that's separate issue, but I think it's time. I see. I see your uh, sort of uh, our our hosts here are getting uh, ready to 
to wrap this up, I want to finish on a positive note. So, um, and, and I, I really think where what the positive note here is, what can we do to improve affordability? Because there's no way Vancouver is affordable on any measure, right? So, uh, and I think one thing to do is increase supply. By the way, that's also going to increase taxes through the new additional economic activity. And we'll fund the NDP budget the way it is, uh, you know, regardless of whether you believe it's, uh, it's um, uh, you know, it's inflated or not. And actually, Tom has a good idea of how to sell um, uh, upzoning. Um, maybe, Tom, you can tell us a little bit about it. I have a slight modification and, and you know, I think that's that's a... I'm just trying to suggest a way forward rather yeah. than uh, trying sure. to... Sure. So, you know, another way the city, the province could have gone to raise revenue off single-family homes, and I don't know how this would have gone politically, would be to say anywhere where, I don't know, 80% of the income distribution can't afford a single-family home, which would be certainly the whole west side of Vancouver and probably the whole city and a lot of the suburbs, the province could say single-family zoning in that kind of market can't possibly be in the public interest because you're just pushing people out to the suburbs where they have to drive so it's bad for the environment. It hurts the owners because they can't sell their property for as much. And the only person it helps is rich people with a taste for single-family homes who are getting a subsidy because they don't have to compete with developers for the land. That's a heck of a public purpose for a tax. And the province could have said, we're going to ban that. And that would have raised single-family values a lot so that holding constant the mill rate, you probably would have raised more money that way. Now, uh, a question is, what do you do? And, 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 And that's the suggestion. Do you give all of that benefit to the homeowners? Another way to capture that value is to say, we don't want to change the west side into a construction zone immediately. We only want a couple thousand multifamily units being built on this prized land every year. Well, how do you make sure the market doesn't overbuild? Answer auction. Say, we're going to sell the right to bus zoning. We're going to freeze zoning, but we're going to sell the right to bus zoning in our municipality uh, to, and now the the plans have to look beautiful. They have to be beautiful townhomes or rental apartments that provide affordable housing and are attractive, whatever you want. And you say, we're going to really limit the amount. They can go anywhere in single family zones in our city, but you got to buy the right. And we're going to let the market decide how much it's worth. And it's worth a lot. The right to go dense townhome, you know, floor space ratio of two instead of 0.7 or whatever, tripling density on this land, that's worth millions and millions of dollars. In fact, if you think that municipalities could allow a million extra units uh, over the next 20 years uh, by relaxing regulations, and each of those units could sell for a million over construction cost, that's a million times a million is a trillion dollars in revenue. So forget $200 million a year. A trillion dollars uh, is, is is more than that. And let's see here, $200 million to uh, $2 billion to $20 billion, it dwarfs it. So that resource, and the province could take a cut. The province, right now cities aren't really allowed to do that. They kind of dance around it with community amenity contributions. The province could say, uh, you know, you're allowed to do this, but we want a 50% VIG. That's, uh, you know, a half trillion to the province, a half trillion to the municipalities. Maybe I'm off by a factor of 10. Maybe it's 5 trillion each. Or maybe it's five hundred billion uh, or fifty billion. It's more either than way. either of us can count. We can agree on that. Yes, it, it, it's a lot of money, and you know, you get the housing the community wants. Uh, you get a fortune in uh, in revenue. 
the housing's beautiful. You, you have the right pace of construction. Things don't get overwhelming. It seems like a, a real slam dunk to me. And, and towns are doing it. Everybody points to Burnaby as a success story. They're very transactional in how they increase density. Uh, so yeah, so that would have been uh, a complimentary, I would say, way to go. I'd say, you know, do both, uh, raise property taxes on everybody, make a special economic zone, low income taxes, low sales taxes. Let's eat Silicon Valley's lunch while Trump's keeping out all the immigrants. Uh, but at the same time, let's add density, uh, make the place more affordable and, uh, raise a ton of revenue while you're at it, uh, allowing further softening of other taxes or more awesome public spending. So I think Andre and I totally uh, agree in the principle, uh, the implementation you, you got to leave to, uh, I'd say smarter people, but more political yeah. people, certainly. Right. So th that's fine. Uh, I, I like that. I like the idea of auctioning, uh, zoning very much. Uh, the only tiny modification I would do is I would make sure that the immediate neighbors participate in that pro pro uh, process. So what I would do is draw circles around each property and for each floor or each extra unit you're adding, the circle expands so it includes more and more people, right? And then there is a formula how much, uh, you know, how much you pay each one person. And then you have to have something like 75% vote of the people in the circle around the, the, the property, right? So if someone, if, if there is a neighborhood that doesn't want a high rise, they're not going to get a high rise, right? They just say, no, no, thank you. And there's going to be another neighborhood where people will say, well, you know what? Maybe I don't like the high rise, but I'm getting some cash here, cash payment, uh, and I'm going to go along with that. And there will going to be another neighborhood that will say, you know what? Actually, I'll take a very small cash payment because I like to have a high rise because that will bring uh, grocery stores and schools and, and whatever else I like. So you're going to have a mixture of that. And that way we're going to be developing exactly where people want, not shoving anything down anyone's throat. And, um, and we're going to continue living in a great city that, uh, that we now have. Yeah, and I think Andre's got in the back of his mind there the Groves-Clark mechanism because the one thing you'd worry about is the neighbors. It's cheap talk. Oh, I want. Yeah, I know your profit's worth a bit because it's the West Side. I know this this project's worth ten million bucks. I need at least five million dollars to live next to a townhome. Baloney. But how do you prove it? And uh, then the answer is everybody at the beginning of the year, if you wanted to get really funky about it, writes a, writes down a, on a little piece of paper. Here's how much money I need to be compensated. And you got to be careful because if you lie and you really only need. 50 grand and you put down 5 million, you're not getting 50 grand or 5 million because the development will go otherwise. So yeah, I actually, it, it's a little much to ask of the political process, but I think we, we absolutely could incorporate uh, paying the appropriate side payment uh, to the neighbors in there too. Absolutely. So, so it seems like both of you have gotten really excited when it comes to supply questions. Uh, why do you think there's so much focus on demand right now as opposed to supply? Like there seems like folks like yourselves are talking about supply. We talk to so many people who are saying supply, 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 and yet the government is focused solely on demand. Is, there, is it just easier or what, what are your thoughts? Well, a lot of it is, has something to do with being easier. Um, it's hard to build, you know, uh, that takes time and effort and, and, and a whole lot of people get upset uh, because they suffer the negative consequences, but they don't get paid for the views or, or space that they've lost. Um, and then the other issue is, of course, um, no matter what we do, supply takes time. 
and it takes an extraordinary amount of time in Vancouver. Uh, so, so it's going to be years before that comes in online. So uh, I'd like, I mean, one thing the province can do is say any development proposal needs to be reviewed within five business days, right? Or even five days total. And unless it violates some bylaw, it needs to be approved. Well, obviously, five days is an extreme here, right? I don't actually mean to suggest that. But <laughs> but you get the idea. Very, very tight timelines. And the fact that the city doesn't have resources to review um, proposals is um, it's very strange to me because there's no shortage of architects and, and city planners in the world, right? There may be a shortage of architects and city planners in Vancouver. Well, that's fine. You know, you offer high enough wage, yeah. you can you can increase that capacity and quite we'll literally it, yeah. overnight. So, so, but but to answer your question, I mean, there's a lot we can do on the supply side. But to answer your question, I think that's not done because it will take time. No matter what we do, it will take time to come in. Uh, it appears that uh, that uh, politicians like immediate results, and uh, and also there's um, obviously opposition to local opposition to this kind of development because people suffer the, um, the consequences of densification but don't get paid for it. So I say, let's fix that and pay, pay them for it. Yeah, you know, the uh, anti-David Eby school tax signs that you see on Point Grey Road look really physically similar to the don't put a bike lane that's going to make me trim my hedge on uh, Point Grey Road signs. And uh, it's terrifying, I can tell you, to run up against uh, the single-family uh, homeowner who, who's attached to the status quo. One thing I will say, I think, you know, uh, I think that's, that's changing. I think a lot of people, you know, people who are very against the school tax have reached out to me. We have a coffee and they say, why can't I build townhomes on my property? Uh, I think they recognize the single-family home buyer is not uh, a young family. It's just not feasible and that, and that density would allow their family to move into the neighborhood. So I think, you know, views are evolving. But Andre's point about the time is really important. You know, City Hall is not the only bottleneck in the development process these days, as I understand. I mean, you, you, the city the city could approve whatever it wants. It's going to take a lot of time before anybody sees any results. And uh, politics, unfortunately, uh, occurs typically on a you know relatively short time frame. As economists, this is a really interesting question for, for Adam and I when we discussed. Do these recent provincial housing policy changes help the local and provincial economy? Well, it, obviously, the economy is very complicated, so it's hard to give a yes or no answer here. But uh, no, I mean, I think uh, I think having um, increasing the tax burden does not uh, does not uh, help the economy. I, I can't see how that would happen. Uh, um, what, um, of course, might help very much is increasing affordability. So clearly, the high housing costs in Vancouver are, I would think, a negative for the economy. Uh, seeing you really can't bring people to uh, to work here, so uh, you know increasing affordability might ha- clearly would would be beneficial for the economy. I don't particularly see the school tax uh, as being uh, as helping affordability at all. Uh, you increase the housing costs, you you know even if prices fall, that doesn't really make it easier to own. But um, uh, but unless we also take measures on increasing or on, on helping the economy grow. I don't see how um, how we're gonna make Vancouver more affordable, and that's why I like the supply side argument uh, so much because it, um, it it helps people make money, it increases income, it raises tax revenue through the additional economic activity, and it also um, you know keeps prices uh, flat 
uh, or at least not rising so fast. So uh, that's a way to get affordability. Um, you know, taxing and slowing down the economy and lowering prices doesn't help if you're also poorer at the same time. Yeah, I think it does help. Uh, you know, uh, I heard from Brian Yu, uh, I think it's Credit One. He says um, there's a labor shortage. You can't Firms can't want to expand, but they can't hire workers. Why can't they hire? Because they don't pay them enough to afford the local real estate prices. So what message do we want to be sending to workers? Do we want to tell them with our tax system, hey, come buy our property, but don't try to make any money here? Well, that won't work because there's not enough property for them. So, you know, you're just going to push up prices when you do that. And people won't want to come here because there won't be enough income to pay rent uh, or to buy a place. If you instead say, hey, everybody, uh, stop it with the real estate demand, but we want to encourage you to live and work for a living. As Andre pointed out, the incidence is on the current property owners. You can't get away from that. But in terms of attracting work, the workforce, which is exactly what we need to expand around here, they don't pay that tax. That's paid by the current owners. And then they get to keep more take-home money. So it absolutely increases affordability for renters uh, and people who don't live here yet relative to uh, keeping uh, the, the old tax regime. Uh, and, and that's how it helps the economy. And, and that's how it helps affordability, because affordability is how much money you, do, you take home uh, relative to your cost. You're not changing the cost for people who don't yet own very much because it's so hard to build here. Uh, but you do increase their take home pay and you give them a better amenity package with better schools or uh, whatever else the government's spending money on. So I, I missed that point a little bit. How do they, how are they better off? So sure, property prices are lower. So, yeah, it's easier to buy, but then you pay higher property tax. So how are they better off? Your total payment ah, remains the other, the same. The other taxes that you're shifting away from. But we're not shifting away from any taxes. I thought we agreed on well, that. Well, no, already. I don't think we do agree. The NDP had the stuff they ran on, no MSP, more money for schools. They didn't run on more money schools. or They have to spend more money on schools. Now, if you believe what the NDP is doing by raising these taxes is taking the money and burning it, I completely agree there's no improvement in affordability. If you think the NDP was going to spend that money, or if you believe the money the NDP is spending has value... Uh, then raising property taxes implies that you're cutting other taxes to fund the same amount of spending. And then, yes, you know, without this tax, there would have been higher income taxes, higher sales taxes, and that would have purely discouraged uh, the new workforce. Instead, they get more take-home pay for the same, almost identically the same real estate costs. And again, that's the reason why Vancouver shouldn't have the same tax burden as everywhere else. It should have a higher tax burden. Because when you talk about juicing the Winnipeg economy, you bring in workers, if they want to buy houses, great, you'll build more houses for them. Here in Vancouver, when you tell people, hey, come buy our property with our low property tax rate, there's nowhere to put them. So prices just inflate. It's totally pointless to offer that package of come buy property, don't work here. It makes no sense in a place like Vancouver. A place like Winnipeg, Des Moines, Iowa, Dallas, Texas, there you can rationalize it. So I, don't, I, I just don't buy that we should be saying same dollar amount. I think rates are better. And again, Vancouver should have a higher tax burden on property, lower on income and sales. And I don't think we should ignore that because we have about half the elasticity of other cities. So I think we already covered that. <laughs> Three times. So uh, here's here's a question. Sorry. Though. If if uh, 
so affordability in the short term is a good thing. Affordability in the long term for the economy is a good thing. I'm just wondering about the next three to five years. Oh, hang on a second. Affordability in the short term, if it's lower housing prices, is not necessarily a good thing. Well, this thing. is – okay. So, yeah, I misspoke because I'm wondering long term, it seems like we all can agree affordability is good for the local economy. What does the next three to five years look like if we transition to uh, significantly lower housing prices? Mm-hmm. Ask, to- ask Modesto or Fresno or Reno, Nevada what a significant price correction looks like that is not a pretty sight yeah absolutely so lowering prices is not a way to to help affordability and it's certainly not a way to grow the economy what's a way to grow the economy is increase supply because that uh, generates local incomes it generates tax revenue and it keeps prices you know hopefully the same level or maybe a slow increases and then the best part is people have choice. People have choice of more inventory. I think it's not just prices. It's man, it's really, really hard to buy, and increasing supply will will help that. I just don't see how increasing property tax would appeal to anyone. So, Tommy, we're talking about bringing all these high tech workers from the Silicon Valley. Okay, so someone's gonna come here and will say, okay, well, property prices are still pretty expensive, lower than they were before. Oh, and now I have to pay much higher property tax. Oh, and look, I also have a much, much higher income tax. Um, How is that attractive? Oh, by the way, yeah, sure, the government is big and it spends a lot of money. Okay, Uh, so who's going to move to a place because, especially those high-paid, you know, Silicon Valley talent, who's going to move to a place because they get you know, uh, a large government. I think uh, what's much more appealing is to say, look, it's a fantastic city. We have lower taxes and and we still have a pretty good government and we still have really good local services and we finance those local services through increased economic activity of increasing supply. Well, I totally agree. First of all, tens of thousands of skilled immigrants are coming every year, as I understand it. So it's not like nobody's on the margin to come here, not come here. And again, uh, holding government constant, those higher property taxes are buying you lower income and sales taxes. I, I'm not saying do the same thing as the NDP. I don't want to uh, sit here and, and justify one political party or the other. What I would say is shift the tax burden from uh, one to the other. And I think it's clear, obviously, if somebody comes here, pays the same after-tax dollars for housing, but has a lower income or sales tax rate, obviously, this becomes a more compelling place to come. And, there's no way, and there is no way somebody thinking about coming to live here and work isn't looking at after-tax income. That, that stuff does matter. Okay, so last question uh, for you two. Um, we just touched briefly on, on the next three to five years, and if we transition to lower prices, it could look like a disaster. Um, we've seen considerable slowing in the real estate market this year. 2018, basically the spring market never materialized. What is the primary driver for the slowdown, in your opinion, or your educated uh, opinion? Uh, and what does the next six months, three years, five years look like if present trends continue? Well, I think we have a number of factors. We have higher interest rates and rising. We have much tougher underwriting requirements. Um, now you have to report uh, real estate transactions on your income tax. So any potential tax evasion that was happening using real estate assets is pretty much gone. Um, So obviously that last one is actually a very good measure. The higher interest rates and the tougher underwriting requirements are also, in my view, justified because we have inflation and 
And you know, it is the the job of the federal government to to protect financial institutions and and, and those tougher underwriting requirements, even though. They're painful for many of us. Uh, the, you know, I think they're justified. I think we're going to be a stronger economy going forward in the long run when we have those uh, in place. So I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying there's a whole bunch of factors uh, uh, at the federal level that are affecting the housing market. And then, of course, locally, uh, we have um, a whole set of new taxes. Some are real estate related, some are not. Uh, in my view, that worries people um, that uh, that it's going to kill the economy, uh, even if you're not into real estate at all. Um, so uh, between uh, you know the what the federal government is doing and the federal institutions and and the new taxes that we got, um, I'm not terribly surprised that the real estate market is slowing down. Having said that, I look out the window and I see beautiful water and beautiful mountains. And even if we do, even if we do um, Tom's proposal with my uh, little cavern that some of the additional money for upzoning should go to the locals, so if, if even if we do that and we get this wonderful supply increase, it's never gonna be enough, right? I mean, I think Tom is correct that there's a whole bunch of people who wanna come here because uh, you know governments around the world have really screwed up many places. And ours is uh, relatively stable, right? So uh, Canada is a very attractive place. We're also always going to have immigrants. So in the long run, you know, it's um, it's hard to imagine Vancouver not recovering, you know, three to five years down the line. In the short run, who knows? But I'm I'm worried about all those all those effects, higher interest rates, tougher underwriting requirements, um, and the new taxes locally that we have. It's hard to imagine those combined are not going to have a negative impact on the market. So let me just say I agree with almost everything Andre said. Uh, There's a lot of factors staring us in the face. Now, I think it's about a year and a half ago I sat down with you guys and uh, said the same thing. And we all thought this is going to be a tough year. And that was 2017 start, which was the greatest year for condos in history. So where did I blow it? Where did we blow it? One, you got to respect the bond of the market is very strong. The demand for getting into housing here because a millennial household formation and immigration is a real thing that's not going away. Uh, however, there's a lot of negatives. The problem is if we, a year from now we do see a correction, who done it? Was it the taxes? Uh, was it mortgage policy? Was it higher interest rates? The thing is, we don't know what the right value of a home is in Vancouver with any certainty, right? You're supposed to take net income, divide it by riskless rate minus expected growth. That's a negative number now. You can only come up with sensible valuations if you know the right risk premium, which nobody knows what the right risk premium is for this market or liquidity. Who knows? And it changes. Okay, so we don't know the right value. We don't know the fundamental value today. We don't know it with any certainty. So if prices change 15% in one or the other direction within the next year, maybe it was just the tides. Maybe it was uh, the moon looked a little bit funny and everybody just decided they don't like it. Maybe it was the interest rates. It's really going to be hard to point a finger. And unfortunately, all this tax policy at the provincial level has been happening at the same time as mortgage policy and interest rates at the federal level. So as social scientists, Andre and I are going to be stuck uh, really unable to sort out cause and effect. So when we write the article about what was the impact of these taxes on values, we have this gosh darn lack of an experiment because of the stuff happening at the federal level. So I think that's an awesome place to conclude. I was going to say we'll uh, have to have and, you back. And, and <laughs> then, debate. and, and uh, I think the point is we don't really know much with any certainty. I think I think it's really important to conclude on that because we really don't. 
excellent summary of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for your time, guys. And uh, yeah, we'll have to do it again. Real treat. And thanks for a very lovely civil discussion of Vancouver real estate, which sometimes uh, is the exception. Yes, we need more of that. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Andre, not a discussion, a debate roundtable slash discussion slash roundtable with Andre Pavlov from SFU and Tom Davidoff from UBC. What a great conversation that was. That was that was fantastic. Very high level, uh, but very interesting. I mean, we were saying as we left, hey, it's amazing to watch two guys that. Uh, heavy hitters he- two heavy hitters <laughs> just sit across the table and go at each other and and they they've disagreed they were looking for things to agree upon but it was for the tough, most though. part they disagree on almost everything reluctantly is- agreed on a few things like kind of but yeah no it was it was uh it was fascinating really great conversation and uh, we'll have to have more of those for sure and so one thing that we want to say again vancouverrealestatepodcast.com go to this episode we are going to have a vote who won the debate and you know it's not an acrimonious relationship we just want to know what you think yeah so go over to vancouverrealestatepodcast.com also we should say when you're there sign up for the live wire we got original content on our site uh and we put out that weekly email last week we had a question that uh you know do you think the spring or fall market's going to be busier uh, where you can just click, Tons of responses. click and click and hit send. Yeah, it turns out people think the fall is going to be busier. But it makes sense, right? Because I mean, it, the the big thing about the spring market this year is is kind of that it's been delayed or that it hasn't really shown up, right? And uh, I think this is part of it is that you know a lot of policies were introduced at the beginning of the year. Everybody kind of pushed pause. They moved to the sidelines, and so it makes sense that a lot of people think that the the fall is going to be busier. Well, and you know what? Think back to 2016, August 2016, we had the foreign buyers tax. It right. was like a punch in the face. Basically, the market hit pause till the end of the year. 2017, it was like a cannon. It shot take off, right? Right, right, right. So a lot of people will are probably right now kind of a lot of buyers sitting on the fence kind of wondering, should I get into the market? At the end of the day, Vancouver's still Vancouver and, you know, people have to move and, you know, they're not going to put it off for five. It doesn't make sense to put off moving for five years because you think the market might be shifting. Yeah, no, no kidding. No kidding. So what else do we got? We got private client services. If you're not using private client services, Matt, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. Private Client Services gives you sold prices. It gives you listing updates 36 to 72 hours before the general public, MLS, and you get realtor-level information. There's no reason why you shouldn't be using Private Client Services. We also have that mobile app. Yeah, the mobile app with augmented reality. That's right. No, Matt, picture this. You're you're one of those hipsters on Union riding a unicycle to, <laughs> to work, and uh, you've got your cell phone out. You're just scanning the area. You know, not really paying attention to traffic. <laughs> and you like know you've that, had an experience with this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I've got two unicycles. Um, but anyways, it, you, you know, you can, you can pan around, look at buildings. If there's a listing in that building, you can see it immediately. Yeah, no, it's, it's an amazing app and it's great for on the go. So go over to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, sign up for PCS and the mobile app. You want both those. You do want both those. And last but not least, we really appreciate the reviews. We're almost up to 160 reviews on iTunes. 
and uh, we, I think we've got like 14 or 15 on Google. So yeah. if there's... It's overwhelming. If there, it is overwhelming. We really appreciate it. If you want to help the podcast grow and you feel like you've gotten something from our episodes, please head over and give us a review. We read each review. We always, uh, we always appreciate it. And thank you in advance. Absolutely. And last but not least, go over to the site and vote. We want to see those votes. I'm super keen to find out how people think that debate went, who won. And if you want to talk about it further, give me a shout, 778-847-2854, or email me at matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574, or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And if you just want to rant, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. The one we don't read. (laughs) Enjoy your week, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.